the Pete Callender Show on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. I'm Pete, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. John Lott, he is the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, and uh, he used to be until uh, January of 2021. Uh, he was senior advisor for research and statistics at the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Legal Policy, where he dealt with issues of vote fraud. He has a... A bunch of research coming out. It's about to be published in a peer-reviewed economics journal called Public Choice. It finds evidence of around 255,000 excess votes, possibly as many as 368,000 excess votes for Joe Biden in six states, swing states, swing states where Trump said there was fraud. Biden only carried these states by a total of 313,000 votes. So, at the upper end of the scale here, of the range that John Lott has identified, the outcome of the election could very well have been swung based on these excess votes. All right, so what did John Lott look at? And by the way, if the name sounds familiar, it's probably because he's done tons of research on gun crime and uh, uh, gun violence statistics and that sort of thing. First, here are the three tests of the vote fraud. This is what he looked at. First, I compared precincts in a county with alleged fraud to a neighboring uh, county and similar precincts. Do you get that? So if you've got, you know, let's say there's fraud accused in, uh, in Mecklenburg County. He would look at the precincts and the counties that are around the precincts and county in question. Precincts tend to be small. They tend to be homogenous and um, very few people. And so when comparing Trump's absentee ballot vote shares among those adjacent precincts, you can account for differences in the in-person vote share and in registered voters demographics. And with the focus on winning the state, he says, There's no apparent reason why Democrats would get out the absentee ballot vote more in one precinct than in a neighboring precinct with a similar political and demographic characteristic. Does that make sense? Two precincts right next to each other, two counties right next to each other. It's in the same state. So if you're trying to turn out your voters in the state, then it makes sense that those efforts are going to hit the people of similar demographic profile in those adjacent neighboring precincts and counties, right? You're not going to like, oh, sorry, I'm on this precinct line. I mean, think about that. A precinct can be very, very small, right? A couple hundred people. You're only going to target one precinct? No, you're targeting the whole area or the whole city or the whole state. So that message is going to get out. Those efforts are going to reach more than just that one precinct. Artificially, he also looked at, um, well, then he applied the same method Uh, to provisional ballots in Allegheny County, specifically in Pennsylvania. And finally, artificially large voter turnout can also be a sign of vote fraud. The fraud could come in the form of filling out absentee ballots for people who didn't vote or voting by ineligible people or bribing people for their votes. So Republican-leaning swing state counties had higher turnouts Relative to the 2016 election. Republican-leaning swing state counties, higher turnout. 
So more turnout in 2020 in the Republican swing state counties than in 2016 when Trump won. Democratic-leaning counties had lower turnout. Democratic-leaning counties had lower turnouts except for the Democratic counties with the alleged vote fraud. They had very high turnout. That is suspicious. Sorry, guys. Look, I've been hearing people make these allegations of, you know, Trump uh, uh, Trump was robbed, Biden stole the election, all this. And I've been asking people, listeners of the show, you know, allies on the political uh, battlefield that have been saying these things. And I always say back to them, show me the evidence. This, this is evidence. When you show me a state map, let's say Georgia, you show me a state map and every county in the state that went Democrat had lower turnout than in 2016, except for the counties where the fraud was alleged to have occurred. And all of those counties have sky high Democrat turnout. That is suspicious. It is not. It is not enough to win a conviction. I don't even know if it's a preponderance of evidence. It's sus as it, it is sus. It is. It's suspect. It's suspicious and it should be investigated. He says, my estimates likely understate the true amount of fraud with absentee ballots. Vote fraud erodes trust in elections and makes people less motivated to vote. Compared to Europe and other developed countries, America is unique in its lax approach to vote fraud. When all demographic and political groups in the United States support voter IDs, and even 46% of Democrats believe that mail-in voting leads to cheating, ignoring concerns won't make the problem go away. For the people who are constantly accusing me and other uh, advocates for election integrity, for, for these people to accuse me of trying to suppress votes while blocking security measures that would actually lead to more confidence in the elections, which would actually lead to more turnout, higher turnout. You are actually suppressing the vote. If you care so much about democracy, why won't you protect it? You guys are supposed to be the ones that you're all about a democracy, uh, right? Constantly crying and screaming hysterically about all of the things that are going to destroy the democracy. He's coming for the democracy. and We're the defenders of democracy. If you care so much about the democracy, why don't you take these steps to protect it? Because it's vital. And if people don't have confidence in the system, they don't participate. Think of it this way. If you went to go play the lottery and I kept winning, and I mean winning all the time, I won every lottery since its inception. Every single week, like two, three lotteries a week, I'm just gobbling up the dollars. Would you keep playing that lottery? No, nobody would because it's rigged. It looks like it's rigged. You don't have confidence that you're actually going to get a fair shot. Same thing with elections. Or should I be the cynic and should I uh, should I uh, just adopt a false assumption about your motives, lefties, and just say that you want there to be vote fraud so Republicans and conservatives stay home and don't vote so you can win? Is Because that's what you accuse the other side of doing. I could do that, too. The argument works against you as well. That's why election integrity matters. It's not about suppressing votes. I've talked about this before. 
Every system that you set up is going to be restrictive in some manner. We have to decide how to best have a system where as many people who can vote legitimately, legally, can vote while also guarding against fraud, which is why, which is why I bring to you this story. A transparent voting process that cannot be corrupted, hacked, or cheated. All right, so the left loves them some absentee voting, right? Kevin Downey Jr. at PJMedia.com says, I say let's give it to them. And let's make it as easy as picking up a scratch-off lottery ticket from the local store. Hell, let's let's let them vote on their phones. What could go wrong? Nothing, actually. Redo Voting. That's the name of the company. Redo Voting. The world's first and only transparent, unhackable, incorruptible, paper-based voting system. No wiggle room on chain of custody. No Zuckerbucks to buy influence and no reason to stop counting votes at 1030 at night when the Republican presidential candidate is pummeling what's-his-face, you know, that thing. Does this sound too good to be true? What is redo voting? It's, it's spelled R-E-D-O, voting. Oh, so maybe it's redo, sorry, or redo. No, I think it's redo. Redo voting is a hybrid of existing secure document tech used by... State lotteries. I was so ahead of the curve on this. I've been saying this for years, probably like a decade, but I don't I don't know how to program any of this stuff. So I was just throwing it out there. Maybe somebody heard me say it, uh, you know, one night uh, while they were sleeping in a car on a road trip or something, and it kind of just went into their brain. But they also take this secure document technology used by state lotteries, and they combine it with government-level encryption. And the result is a voting system that is paper-based, but it uses a web browser for data entry. A great example of this is your state's lottery program. 45 states currently have a statewide lottery. And because of the massive amounts of money that pass through the system, the security is the best available this side of military encryption. If that were hackable, think about it, Billions of dollars would have already been stolen and probably on a regular basis, but it doesn't happen. So redo voting is using the same tech and the same process. It's the latest rage, this idea, the brilliance of redo voting is the latest rage in Washington, D.C. Everybody's talking about it, says Kevin Downey Jr. You've heard a lot about the chain of custody problems in the 2020 election. With redo voting, chain of custody is no longer an issue. It's 100% guaranteed from the printer right through exhaustion of post-election excuses. You cast your vote on a secure website domain, .gov, and no one but you touches your ballot. That's it. It could be used to vote in person. It could be used from anywhere else on the planet. Here's how it works. You get a scratch-off ballot, like a ticket, right? You get a scratch-off ballot based on the same technology as a lottery ticket, and you can pick it up anywhere, wherever they're going to make these things available. You can put them in retail stores. You can put them in libraries. You can put them everywhere. 
because it, the ticket doesn't matter so much because when, it only works once you scratch it off and then scan the QR code. You know, that thing that looks like a square with the it's like an ink blot, but a square. So then you scan that thing on your phone. You can also enter the information if you're at home on a computer browser. You could do it that way. Your browser then goes to a website. Eligible registered voters cast their votes because now you're cross-referenced, which solves the problem of the voter ID. The vote is private, it's secure, and it goes directly into a secure database. And once it's there, you can't change it, you can't delete it, and no one else can vote for you because now you're checked off on the list. When voting is closed, the Secretary of State then applies a decryption key. This opens up the repository, tallies the votes, does this in seconds. So we don't have to wait for hours upon hours as the last people trickle in to the Macquarie YMCA. I'm sorry, is that a little too close to home? Sorry. But now that's usually what happens. Every single election cycle, at least in Mecklenburg County, there's always one precinct, there's always the Macquarie Y, where they'd have to stop the voting or extend the hours. This mad rush of voters that were like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot it's election day, and they just swamped the the precinct two minutes before the polls closed. For no other reason than they all just remembered it was election day, right? No, no, no. Under this program, polls closed, decryption key inserted and turned, uh, hypothetically, uh, you, you put in the key, and it tallies the votes in seconds, and then the Secretary of State can actually give the key to anybody who wants to see the results, including voters, because the tallies cannot be altered. So anybody can get an audit now. The public instantly knows how many votes each candidate got. So Kevin Downey Jr. is thinking this is too good to be true. So he interviews the co-founder and president of Redo Voting, a fellow by the name of John Rogers, and he says, well, isn't everything hackable? And Rogers says, technically, yes. But it would take all the computing power of a modern nation state and roughly five billion years to do it, he says. So you're saying there's a chance. Non-citizens who are not registered would not be able to vote. They won't be recognized in the system. No matter how many scratch-off ballots you grab, you can only vote once. The system also employs fraud detection measures. And absentee, so if you vote privately and securely, you could do it from anywhere in the world. An absentee ballot may be cast securely in real time, anywhere on the globe, and only by the voter who requested it. Not everybody has a phone, though, right? True. Although Obama did give everybody the phone, recall. But free scratch-off ballots can be made available at government offices and at retail outlets. If you lose one, you get just grab another. If a voter's physically impaired or in a nursing home, the state can send somebody to go help them vote as they already do. This needs to happen. This needs to happen. And then a lot of this stuff goes away. People have confidence in the system and nobody's being suppressed and we save the democracy. Okay. All right, so let me get Eric on the line here. Uh, Oh, he's not there. Oh, what happened? Eric? No, Eric, are you there? No, no, he's not there. But Eric called in and he had a question. First off, he wanted to know what the percent of fraud was in Mecklenburg County, I think was the question. 
right? That was the first question he had. See, because this is this is who I am. I'm a giver. And so Eric uh, didn't want to stick around to ask me the question. I don't know why, but I'm going to, uh, I'll give the answers because this is who I am. And so uh, what is the percentage of fraud in Mecklenburg County? I don't know. Nobody knows. But there's always some fraud. Always. Logic dictates it because the security measures are virtually non-existent. I'm not saying there are none. I'm just saying it's really super easy. And I'm not going to walk through how to do it for you. But if you Google Dan Forrest's video from four years ago, he tells you exactly how it's done. And by the way, the campaigns know this. The parties know it. The activists know it. Anybody who wants to engage in vote fraud has plenty of opportunities to do so. Okay, so how much of a percentage is affected? I don't know. I don't know because we don't monitor it and we barely ever prosecute it. And even when they do, it's a class I felony, which means you get a stiffer sentence for stealing pine straw in North Carolina. Not kidding. So that's the answer to your first question is I don't know. Nobody knows. It's it's not it's unknowable right now. Um, And the second question was. I think he asked, do we have this redo voting system already in place in Mecklenburg? Uh, No, we do not. That is not the system in place. The system in place, if it's still the same as when after the 2000 election and we had to get all of the voting machines, which I believe is still the case, because it was the case up until a few years ago. I think it's the ESS, ESNS or whatever it's called. Uh, They were the ones that won the contract, I think, with the state. And again, I'm going back 20 years, but no, redo voting is not. There, because you would have scratch-off tickets all over the place. And we don't... Do you have to scratch off a ticket when you vote in Mecklenburg County? No, you don't. So we don't have that system. Okay. See, there you go. I've answered the questions. That's what I'm about. And this story, I am about solutions as well. That's why I bring to you this story about redo voting, and I would love to see lawmakers take this up and implement this in North Carolina, or at least run it through some of the appropriate committees uh, at the legislature to examine it. Look, when we first, when Mecklenburg County first adopted the touchscreen machines, and I do this, I've done it every time. Whenever I get in front of a touchscreen, I give that thing a workout. I vote, I cancel it, I vote again, I cancel that one, I go back and forth, I vote, and I just keep pressing the buttons to make sure that that paper ticket is registering everything that I'm doing. So I feel confident by the time I get to the end of the ballot that I have made a sufficient number of mistakes. No, I, I, I feel confident that every time I went back and changed something, that it registered the change. Also, if anybody's, you know, monitoring it, they'll be like, oh, here's Pete's vote again. I can tell because it's like 17 feet long. <laughs> you know, the ticker tape is. <laughs> so that, that's what I do. I give it a workout. I always do because I want to see. When I press this button, does it actually register that? And if I cancel it out and change it, does it register that? And then if I vote again for the same candidate, does it put it back on? And if I change the vote to a different candidate, does it change the candidate? I do all of that. But for a long time, we've been treated to stories from the mainstream media that is not even curious about whether or not what John Lott was talking about in his research was true. And this brings me to a piece by Jacob Siegel called Invasion of the Fact Checkers at Tablet Magazine, tabletmag.com. In the past five years, a cadre of fact checkers 
has marched through the institutions of journalism and installed itself in the U.S. media as a privatized, quasi-governmental regulatory agency. Well, what's wrong with facts, you say? Fueled by a panic over misinformation, the fact-checking industry is shifting the media's primary obligation away from pursuing the truth and towards upholding vague notions of public safety, which it gets to define. In the course of this transformation, journalists are being turned into rent-a-cops, whose job is to enforce an official consensus that is treated as a civic good by those who benefit from and pay for its protection. This is, I think, one of the most incisive and insightful pieces on the fact-checking crap that has just infected newsrooms. Facebook, Instagram, Google, Twitter, right? All of these platforms, algorithms, push down content that is deemed to be misinformation or disinformation, right? In reality, America's new public-private ministry of truth mainly serves the interests of the tech platforms and the Democratic Party operatives who underwrite and support the fact-checking enterprise. This in turn convinces large numbers of normal Americans that the officially sanctioned news product that they receive is an ass-covering con job. Because it is. In a lot of cases, it is. Oh, by the way, did you see that the uh, Washington Post has now got a big story out about Hunter Biden's laptop? (gasps) Oh my gosh, guys, did you know Hunter Biden had a laptop? Yeah, he had some stuff on there, too. Some emails. Have you heard about this? Yeah, it's true. Oh, no, no, not about the Ukraine corruption, but about the Chinese corruption. I know. Whoever would have thought such a thing, except, of course, like the Washington Free Beacon, the Washington Examiner. Uh, Who else did the cover? I think those were the two guys that did the heavy lifting on it. Daily Wire, I believe. These stories were known in 2020. They were known two years ago. And you guys suppressed it. And you guys used your fact-checking BS to do it. To create a packed journalism herd mentality in order to protect a, a narrative. Or as he calls it, an ass-covering con job. An attitude that marks many millions of people as potentially dangerous voters of misinformation or vectors of misinformation, which then justifies more censorship, further ratcheting up the public cynicism towards the press and the institutional powers it now openly serves. On and on it goes, the distrust and repression feeding off each other and the pressure building up until the system breaks down or explodes. This is the same problem with election integrity. It's the same problem. People do not have confidence in you. By the way, you know where fact-checking began? You know what it used to be about? Fact-checking used to be what newspapers and media organizations did in-house. They used to do fact-checking. This was the job you gave the new person out of college that was like, hey, go find out, you know, is this the year that this thing actually happened? And in the fact-checking process, you would, oh, they missed the date, they messed up this person's spelling of the name or something. But you would also catch lies. You could catch the Stephen Glasses, the people that would just make up stuff. And now it's turned outward. It's It's not an introspective stance. Talk 1110, 99.3, WBT. 
Tablet Magazine, tabletmag.com, Jacob Siegel's piece, Invasion of the Fact Checkers. It is a very, very lengthy piece, by the way, but it is magnificent. I highly recommend it. I'm only giving you a couple of the highlights here. He says, the convergence of fact-checking and Democratic Party priorities is not a matter of speculation. The Democratic National Committee calls for establishing a, quote, political misinformation policy and repeatedly cites the International Fact-Checking Network's partnerships with tech companies as a model for the party's national censorship policy. I don't have time to go over what the IFCN is, but uh, Jacob Siegel does, and I highly recommend the piece. You can learn all about that group's background. Now, one of the central ironies of the boom in narrative regulators, these fact-checking People and organizations, they trade on the audience's respect for older journalistic values like objectivity without acknowledging the role of the prestige media in deliberately undermining those values by implicating them in the continuance of racism and sexism and other toxic bigotries. The result is a familiar yet peculiar double game. If an article points out that a network of bureaucratic and educational activists are inculcating the notion that, let's say, math is racist, right? That claim is right-wing hysteria. But when a journalist determines that crack pipes are innocuous, that's fact-checking. Another driving force behind the growth of the fact-checking complex is the necessity of enforcing loyalty to progressive ideas that cannot survive on their own. This is why I say unchallenged ideas are easy to hold. I noticed this in arguing with leftists over the years. They don't work out their arguments. And so they atrophy. They don't, they don't know how to defend their arguments. They simply state something, call you some names, ask you some questions, and what do you think it means? They don't assert. They don't uh, prove. Right? They don't address head-on the questions when posed. Fact-checking did not originate as some sort of partisan democratic plot against reality. It became a necessary feature of the new journalistic industrial complex in order to inoculate the big tech companies from government regulatory pressure and the threat of private lawsuits from the non-governmental organization, the NGO sector. In other words, it was a concession by the tech companies to the threats that if they did not start censoring themselves, well, then they might get their windows broken by the state. Be a shame if anything happened to it. In that framework, fact-checking is just as potentially dangerous to Democrats under a Republican-controlled White House in Congress as it is to Republicans when Democrats rule Washington. Yet in reality, when it comes to benefiting from state censorship, Democrats and Republicans are not created equal, right? Stripped of their specialized language and social and bureaucratic context, key articles of progressive church faith are repulsive to most voters, regardless of gender or race. That is true of the racialized approach to education that was just roundly rejected in San Francisco. It also is true of calls to defund the police and to teach transgender ideology to kindergartners and of approaches to addiction that appear to promote continued drug use, right? All of these things are not popular. Fact-checkers are now filling a gap in the American system of government because the U.S., the state, now routinely exercises its power through administrative decrees rather than by laws passed by 
the elected representatives of the people. And so they got to rely on these subcontracted non-officials to enforce compliance with the dictates. And that method of government and governance relieves policymakers of any obligation to build broad majorities, to persuade, to get people to support their ideas. So the fact checkers have now proved to be a crucial compliance officer role for the state, right? Here's what he says. Publishers hope fact checking can become a revenue stream. Right now, it's mostly big tech who is buying. That was the headline of a Harvard University Neiman Lab report. In other words, the same Internet platforms that have turned journalism into a hollow shell while incentivizing the hyperpolarized clickbait that cratered public trust in the media in the first place and which happened to be major donors to the Democratic Party. Right? They're also the beneficiaries of a new meta-journalism that places itself above mere reporting as the final arbiter of what is true while benefiting from labor costs that are a fraction of what was spent in traditional newsroom. The current American uh, fact-checking apparatus was constructed to solve an unproved assertion. Do you know what that unproved assertion was? That it, that it was a lack of government regulation that let Trump win. A lack of government regulation over social media, and that's why Trump won. That is an unproven assertion. But in blue and on circles, it is gospel. Up next, Brett Winterbill takes you through the drive. I will see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.